handing over the torch, stepping into the shoes, passing on the baton. These are common phrases used by advisors when they're taking over a firm from the previous owner. But while many firms in the past perhaps have been family and friend concerns with retiring advisors handing the firm and his or her clients onto the next generation, times have changed. Consolidators are increasingly coming to the fore, especially since the Retail Distribution Review came into being in 2013. Trade buyers have also been snapping up firms since the RDR, and with the growing pressures on advisory firms emerging over the past few years, such as the inexorable rise of professional indemnity insurance and the growing regulatory pressures on divine benefit transfers, not to mention the FSCS levies, we've seen more and more advisors talking about making an exit. To talk to us today, we have Paul Morrish, he's Group Corporate Director at Succession Wealth, and Keith Richards, Chief Executive of the Personal Finance Society. They'll talk us through some of the do's and don'ts when it comes to succession planning, as well as discussing some of the drivers behind the need for good, smooth, perfect grooming for sale. Uh, welcome both. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Keith, can I start with you, please, and ask why is succession planning so important for advisory firms? Uh, it's become increasingly uh, more important since firms started to build embedded value uh, within their businesses. I mean, advice traditionally uh, back in the pre-2004 depolarization stage uh, were mainly transactional. So uh, once an advisor stopped advising, the revenue stopped. Uh, today, of course, uh, we've had a number of triggers you've already mentioned. Uh, for me, actually, it goes further back to depolarization in 2004 mm. when Regulation introduced a, a new set of rules that dramatically changed the way that advisors started to be remunerated, recognising that a service-based model was the right way forward that would start to build future embedded value for the advice firm so that when an advisor decided to retire, actually there was value in the firm to be able to uh, sell on mm. uh, or actually pass on to a successor. So. What we've seen is since, as you mentioned, the, the retail distribution review, that's really accelerated. And another key trigger point in recent times, of course, is uh, is pension freedoms, uh, mm -hmm. which have actually dramatically changed the way some firms are thinking now of rather than selling on to a consolidator, they're starting to think about succession within the business that they own and bringing new blood in. So it's interesting dynamics but definitely we saw pre-rdr quite a you know one of the big consolidators in the market i guess uh, uh really benefited from firms that, that were fearful of what rdr was going to bring uh the predicted downturn in the market and, and therefore there was quite a big rush in that pre-rdr period where advisors wanted to at least realize mm -hmm. value in the business that they had established and built over a number of years yeah, absolutely. And and you're so right that you want to realise the value, but quite often people have made a, a very rushed decision, which hasn't been great. So, Paul, could I talk? I mean, you, you obviously have quite a lot of experience um, at your firm in this, but how how important is it to get the succession planning right? I mean, it can take years, can't it? Yeah, it can. I think the key's in the word, actually, there, isn't it? Planning. And if, if you don't have a plan, uh, you really can get either hoodwinked into doing something that with, with hindsight you wouldn't have wished to have done, or you will fail to realise the value that actually is rightfully yours for the lifetime worth of work you've built up. And 
I think it still, to me, seems to be quite interesting that people will take a risk in taking a view on how they're going to exit their own ownership or, or leadership of a firm without a plan. Um, <laughs> without a plan, you're preparing to fail in some ways, aren't you? And I think actually you're selling yourself short, but probably in my view, the real reason for selling a firm and therefore having a plan is the same yeah. as it has always been, which is your most important assets are the ones you've got to look after, which is the fact you've got clients and the fact you've got staff and they will all be around long after you are. And, and actually, if you don't have a plan to look after them, they're the ones that suddenly become at risk. And so I, I think one of the triggers that has changed in certainly my engagement with the market as, as an acquirer is also the fact that... Um, we the post RDR world has given a particular focus to the fact that advice is for your lifetime, not just mm -hmm. in the product sale. And actually, therefore, not just are you building value, but you're also you're delivering a service which isn't just transactional. And therefore, to sell without a plan or to sell in a hurry and to leave those vital assets of your clients and your staff behind, mm -hmm. when actually most of what you've done is talk about the importance of lifetime financial planning seems mm. at odds and, and I, I believe what's happening and, and still needs to happen more actually is people applying uh, as owners of firms the disciplines they would speak to their clients about and indeed their staff uh, to, the, to the ownership they have of their own business. Yeah absolutely because I've spoken to quite a few financial advisors who um well, only only a few, I should say, who've actually they're, they're planning their sons or daughters to take over from them. I mean, you think of um, Philip Saparchek um, and uh, Philip Milton. The, these chaps have been training the the next generation, and that the next generation seem really, really smart, really intelligent, you know, really keen to take over. But we don't really have that sort of sense of family business where your father's clients or your mother's clients are going to be your clients too. That we don't have that more generally do we in the marketplace that sort of sense of ownership and personal relationship do we hey, what's changed there keith now I, well i think quite a number of things similarly and, and it, it, it is interesting in our last graduation ceremony last year we had the highest number of uh young females under the age of 37 in fact over 30 percent of the graduates were, were females under the age of 37 um, and a lot of them, interestingly enough, both male and female coming in uh, of the next generation had actually chosen financial planning as the first career of choice. Now, some of that was driven by they're seeing a very different model today than, than what has evolved over the years. So they're seeing, for example, a chartered financial planning firm that looks a bit like the chartered uh, accountant or the chartered uh, surveyor. Uh, they're, they're more office-based or you know they're not visiting clients' homes, for example, as it was traditionally done in the past, and it's fee-based, of course. So I think what we're seeing now is, is for the point that Paul said, I think firms are now recognising that they're operating uh, life planning, life coaching. It's it not transactional sales anymore. Uh, and therefore, actually, what they're committing to is to provide an ongoing service, not just to the client, but increasingly to the family of mm -hmm. clients. So it is forcing them to start planning about the future. And, you know, many will consider the options available. So whether it's looking to sell on to a, nut, to, to a consolidation firm or, or, for example, you know, small IFAs often are now quite consolidating regionally. Mm -hmm. So you're finding that consolidation happening in different ways, not just through larger, well-structured well firms like Paul's 
but also actually you're getting small groups regionally that are starting to look at it. What, what I do predict, similarly, is in 100 years' time, there will be uh, some IFA or, or advisor practices that still hold the name of the founding uh, principle in a similar way to law and accountancy because more and more that I talk to do want to bring the next generation in because they want their firm to survive. They want their, their practice to be operating long after they've retired and probably long after their demise. But it's so, a legacy, isn't it? It's a legacy. It, 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 yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing a fundamental change, but we can't forget that this is still a very young profession. Uh, you know, it, it was back in pre-RDR times, it was still predominantly transactional rather than service-based. It's dramatically changed and, and we're seeing evolution happening quite quickly. So firms absolutely do need, planning is the key, you've got to start thinking about it sooner rather than later and that's what we're seeing happening across the market. Hmm. Paul, can I ask you um, what sort of role do large trade buyers, consolidators, and even the new vertically integrated firms, what sort of role do all these play in helping those advisors who want to retire or move on, um, and perhaps who don't have a, a view of keeping this kind of legacy, of, uh, their own personal legacy alive? What kind of role do, do these other people play? Mm, I, I mean, I think the simple answer is we, we provide a route and it's a choice. Um, but I think it's very important for everyone to realise that it's just one of many choices. You know, in some ways, as Keith Riley said there, we, we've always, or our advisors who own their own firms have always had the choice of uh, moving it inside the family, consolidating locally. I think the more, the more recent past has just seen the national option emerge. Mm -hmm. um, as a choice and and for some people it's not the right choice for many people it is uh, increasingly a, a sense of being the only choice i guess if you if you look at how do i defray the costs as you said in your introduction of you know db transfer liabilities ongoing uh, runoffs and all that sort of stuff the the operational burden of running your firm the the place that you choose to sell your firm into is actually the place that you choose to lose some of that and I've, I've found, and we've bought 56 firms in just over five years, and i found that still the, the same core principles as they were when we started in 2014 as now, which is in some ways you're setting the advisor free to return to their first love, which is I want to spend time with my clients. I want to really invest in their well-being, uh, but I don't want this other stuff around me. And so if the choice is partly fueled by how do I shed some of the stuff that I really didn't expect to take on because I didn't expect my business to take this amount of my operational time or the cost associated with it. Um, really what you're doing, I think, is providing a forever home for people, you know, for the clients, but also for the staff and in many cases for the owner who doesn't want to give up the advice bit. They might want to lose some of the clients, but they want to keep going with many of them. Um, and so I, I find really that um, consolidators, A, are a choice. Um, there's quite a lot of variety in that choice which takes us all the way back to having a plan and knowing what you're trying to keep hold of and what you're prepared to give up but fundamentally it's a choice to uh to still give your clients what you always wanted to which is a great source for their advice to look after them and of course you as you said some of the advisors do like to stay on or the principals like to stay on maybe as consultants um you don't want to just stop working altogether, do you no i mean i i, I think do you know it's very easy to throw big numbers out there and say, you know, 56 acquisitions, um, 
they've gone well but actually i do think that actually at the core there are the same principles which is people love what they do which is why they entered the profession in the first place and why increasingly it's important to say it is a profession because it is a lot of investment in your own skills and your own ability to do what you're good at and and why would you throw that away it's i find the best firms to buy are actually the ones where the advisors and the principals who own the firms do want to stay in some capacity because they feel a sense of ownership they feel a sense of commitment and what you do is you you find that you can take a national concept but absolutely still deliver it locally and uh, that's where we've had our biggest success i, I think the, the the situations that make me worry a little bit are where you sell into this black hole and, you, and it just becomes amorphous and and you lose the sense of locality and the delivery of advice to the individual client where they want to receive it in the way they want to receive it. That's the dangerous place, but it's often the place without a plan you end up on the free. Mm. Is that, would you agree with that, Keith, that there's this kind of, there's a, there's a danger in just doing it the wrong way? Well, I, there's always a, a danger, similarly, in it, and I think it's where the regulator is, is often uh, focused on whether or not the intent is just to make some money out of selling some client assets as opposed to really looking after the best interests of your your clients i've got to say the majority of advisors that i speak to up and down the country that there is a passion uh, there's there's more passionate advisors in the market than not yeah. you know they do represent the majority it's a people business and therefore you know many advisors rightly or wrongly think that most of their clients are like their personal friends um often not realizing that when they do retire they might not hear from more than a couple of them but um mm -hmm. but that's the way it makes you feel it, it's a relationship business and advisors are very passionate about that so what's happening that we're seeing now is this dynamic of realizing that you are building embedded value so that's the big differentiator for me where advisors are realizing that it's about this recurring income in return for an ongoing lifelong service that is now creating more thinking and, and planning around how do I exit? Whether I want to carry on partially, uh, you know, whether I want to sit behind the firm as the senior uh, principal and hand over to others. And there, and there are some different models that are emerging where it's not just about bringing your family in for the future. There are plenty of other ways where, you, where owners are starting to transfer value to advisors within the business to become the next generation. Uh, and then they use mechanisms within the firm to start buying the the founding principal out. Uh, obviously, for some who who don't you know don't operate on that basis, going to firms like Succession and, and other consolidators are an obvious route to consider, uh, because at the end of the day, now it's not transactional. You are going to leave people at some point uh, without the service that you've promised them. So you can't, you can't afford to let that just drop off the edge of a cliff. And of course, the commerciality of it, there's nothing wrong in that. You know, advisors should be thinking that way. But what we must always look at is from a regulatory perspective, it's always got to be seen that you're thinking about the best interests and long-term best interest of your clients and how you continue to provide the commitment of an ongoing service that you're charging a fee for today. So I think that all blends quite well if advisors think about it in a much broader way. Uh, and that's what we're seeing ac across the piece uh, and throughout the country. So a lot, of, a lot of interest is going into this. Uh, the one thing I would say is sometimes this is, this is often provoked by things like um, an unwelcomed additional FSCS levy 
yeah. which really infuriates the sector. Um, so, you know, I talked to advisors today that told me 10 years ago they were retiring at RDR and they're still operating actively today and building strong businesses. I think the environment that we work in sometimes does provoke a sense of people wanting to get out sooner than they really do want to get out. So I think there is this inbuilt passion that a lot of advisors try to find that route of, a, I guess, phased retirement. So handing yeah. over to someone else is a good way as part of your succession planning as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get that sense from some of the advisors I speak to, you know, they, they ring me up and they've just had their bill through or they've just been hit by another PII um, hike. And they say, this is it, this is the last straw, I'm leaving the industry. And I think you've been saying this to me since 2006. Um, and I'm glad they haven't left because they're really good at what they do. And I really enjoy speaking to them. But I do get that sort of sense of frustration, you know, how many straws really um, are they going to get before the, the, the back breaks, as it were. But I was quite interested by what you said about this sort of long term, um, the long term view. Both of you said it takes a long time to think about succession planning. It's a proper plan. You can't just do it immediately. Um, but you also touched on regulation there. So uh, I'll ask you, Paul, and then come back to Keith, if I may. What sort of regulatory factors should advisors be considering long before they start appointing or thinking about a succession plan? Well, good question. Um, in some ways, I think regulation isn't mature in this space. So, you, so actually, bizarrely, it's almost the things that regulate your conscience and your own decision-making framework, not just what does the regulator say. Um, mm -hmm. So if I might stretch to cover both aspects of that, because I, I think fundamentally, um, the question when you're thinking about your succession plan is what will enable you to sleep well at night when you're no longer in the business and what would your regrets be either from a client or a staff and the economics kind of follow so for me you know the sorts of factors that should be borne in mind are as Keith said people sell to people and, and if you don't like the people you're going to get into bed with you shouldn't be getting into bed and 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 if the industry treats itself like an industry rather than a profession I think you end up in the wrong place, you know, because mm. you end up in a widget factory or a sales machine, which you would never wish to have done. And all key members are very much, I think, in that place where they know the sorts of ways they've built the business and why it's been a success. So for me, I think the criteria for choice are not just regulatory. It's as much to do with the same as when you're running your own business. What proposition do I want my clients to have? Do I want them to have an independent advice source or am I prepared to compromise and go tide? Will that wake me up in the night in, the, in, my, in my dotage? Um, <laughs> but, but by the same token, you do have to think through what the regulatory is or what the regulator is asking, you know. But I think some of those are actually principles that you would wish to apply to a business today. You know, you wouldn't flog a product to a client and then expect to take or take a business on that's done that badly. If someone's delivered bad DB transfer advice, you wouldn't take it on yourself. So don't do it now, because otherwise the regulator will clobber you or clobber the acquirer on the way in, and your business might accidentally become unsellable. So the principle I always encourage. Um, um, sellers, however long away they are from thinking they're going to actually sell their business, is what would you not wish to buy yourself? Because if it's if that's there, don't do it now. Secondly, it's a people thing. You know, if you don't get on with the people and the people they refer to don't effectively say that it was a worthwhile transaction, keep away. And and by the same token, I think um, 
be careful what you're selling into. You know, it's very different mm -hmm. selling into a wealth manager who is a proven wealth manager and an advice giver than to a great big PE-owned vehicle that's just there to accumulate assets and sweat them. Um, and probably to answer more directly the regulatory question, I think the thing that's difficult is second-guessing what the regulator will say. In our experience, uh, they, the regulator is stepping into areas of investigation around change of controls now, for example, that they were never really that bothered about before. Yeah. And I understand why. So to some extent, we're second-guessing the future, which I think reinforces the point about run a good business now, deliver good advice in the same way as you always would have wished to have done, uh, and you'll be fine. But because the regulator will always tick the box for you there. If you're taking risks now, expect the regulator at the point you wish to think about handing your business on to get a bit busy. And that mm. might make life a bit difficult in a way you would have never foreseen. And it is a bit about avoiding the quick buck, but I think it's also about doing what you would always wish someone in this profession to do, which is behave well, deliver the right advice, ongoing to the client. Yeah, that sounds a very fulsome answer, but um, Keith, have you uh, got any more to add? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the uh, senior managers regime as well. Yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. The um, well, I think I, I think Paul's principle is is absolutely the right one to go by. That uh, you know, think think about uh, if you were planning on selling your business or passing your business on. Uh, is it the sort of business you'd be prepared to take on yourself? I think for me, that's similar, that similar principle to the what we used to call the family test. Uh, and that's, you know, would you be happy with someone else selling uh, a product to a member of your family for the price mm. of charging? Uh, so I think it's the it's that's a really good principle. From a regulatory point of view, the FCA don't really have a big issue about, in fact, they they're keen to see firms planning for succession hmm. for the reasons that we've already stated around it's more of a service-based commitment now rather than a transactional relationship um, but they do tend to worry about language so what firms have got to think about is that if you're doing this for you then that you're likely to be more more con of a concern from a regulatory point of view if all you're looking to do is use clients assets to make money Mm. then you you clearly are not thinking about the best interest of the client and therefore the regulator almost certainly will have concerns about the way that that is transacted. So uh, I think it's it comes back to the, the simple tenet. When everyone started talking about vertical integration being the new in vogue pre-RDR, yeah. it, it didn't initially raise regulatory concerns, but it did subsequently because it's whether it was being done for the right reason or the wrong reason. And that's the thing that firms have got to think through very, very carefully. I have seen some really good uh, amalgamations in, in regional events uh, because it is about making sure that whoever takes over your client bank mm. is dealing with your clients in the way that you would like them to be treated uh, because it is this personal relationship bit. So if you're always thinking of the client first, the, the financial aspects will, will follow. That, you know the rewards and the benefits will happen but you've got to demonstrate that you're you're always leading from a client interest perspective not a self-interest perspective and i think that way you're likely to end up with the right outcomes and never likely to conflict with the regulator so it is about language we do sometimes even talk about utilizing new systems which help improve efficiencies for our firm 
nowhere in the language will be talking about how it benefits our clients. Yeah. And although it might be implicit that those efficiencies benefit the clients, it's not visible to the regulator. So sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot by using uh, non-consumer centric language. And that's one mm -hmm. of the things I think tends to worry the regulator when we talk about succession planning. So just think about that always leading from a client perspective rather than the firm or in or, or individual person's commercial interests. And I think that that way will be safe. Um, I was just wondering if the uh, senior managers regime had um, a lot of uh, a, a lot more input now into how principals at firms think about their senior managers and who's going to take over from them. Does it become a very uh, with the FCA sort of looking at all sorts of things, diversity, inclusion, this this kind of thing as well in the firm. Um, I think this might I, I think this might come into succession planning a lot more as well. The FCA might start interrogating why you've appointed certain people. I don't know if that's going to be um, if that's something that people should be worried about in terms of succession planning. Um, I'm not entirely convinced it will it will because I think the, the advice sector has because it's predominantly small firms have always understood that the stop buck that the buck stops with the principal. Mm. So I don't think there's been any confusion about who's responsible uh, for outcomes. Whereas in large firms and the, and really the senior managers regime came on the back of the banking review where it found yeah. that senior people in the banks kind of didn't feel it was their responsibility that someone in a different branch had done the wrong thing. Um, so it was a very clear shift of making sure that senior managers realised that they held the responsibility, irrespective of whether they delegated it to people throughout their organisation. In small firms, uh, as I say, culturally, uh, the firm knows or the principal knows where the buck stops. Uh, and so therefore the SMR at the time was, was counted as not being as relevant for the financial advice market. That said, uh, it, it will develop further, clearly, and, and it should be a consideration for firms within their thinking of succession planning and making sure that whoever they're selling on to are fit and proper and would meet those requirements. But again, it comes back to, would you be happy with your family being served by the firm that you're passing your clients on to. And if the answer is questionable, then you shouldn't do it. The, the other thing that firms do need to think about, similarly, is, is, you know, we've had, and there's still a lot of controversy at the moment around the ultimate impact of things like defined benefit pension schemes. Mm. You know, you've got to consider what your back book of liability looks like um, and whether or not it would be attractive for someone else to take it on. So I think one of the other considerations at the moment that firms have got to think about the risk profile within their own back book of, of liability, because as we know, things like runoff cover uh, isn't available in the market. In fact, we've even got a, a particularly hardened and stressed PI market currently, uh, which I get a lot of post bag uh, reactions from members on as we, we talk to Treasury and, uh, and FCA uh, on the current issue. So I think, again, for longer term, I have heard of some firms struggling uh, or negotiations failing once the acquirer started to look into the uh, the liability that might sit within the back book of advice for the firm that they're, they're interested in. So they're, they're considerations that firms need to think about within their planning. Yeah. In the long term. 
Paul, um, uh, we'll, we'll talk generically. Um, is this something that uh, you at Succession Wealth have been concerned about? I mean, do you look at liabilities or make judgments based on the level of liabilities? Uh, not the level. I think we, we, we do now what we've always done, which is look at the quality of the advice. And if the advice was right, you know, whether it's to do with DB transfer or just, you know, family planning, or so not family planning, obviously family inheritance planning, um, then that's the way we look at it. And uh, as Keith says, actually the right advice is still the right advice. And the mm. fact that there are different factors in there uh, adds complexity, but it should never be a reason to not buy a business uh, so long as the business has done the right thing for the client. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And thank you very much, Keith. You're very welcome. Thank you. I thank think you we've learned much. a lot. No, it's been absolutely fantastic, you know, and, and again, it comes down to do the right thing for your client and you'll get a good night's sleep. Um, that sounds like very good, solid, common sense advice to me. Thank you very much for taking part and thank you all for listening. You will be able to uh, listen to the full podcast on Acast uh, as well. And if you wish to download it, just go to um, ftadvisor.com and you'll find out all the details there. Thank you very much. Bye.